Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series held on February 28, 2018, focusing on the impact of tax reform on human capital investments and mobility. The panelists for the webcast were Scott Olson, a PwC tax partner and co-leader of our people and organization practice, Julie Barron, a PwC tax partner focusing on global mobility, Cindy Frederigo, a PwC tax partner focusing on employee benefits and compensation, and Craig O'Donnell, a PwC tax partner also focusing on employee benefits and compensation. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists focusing on the impact of tax reform on fringe benefits as well as rate change opportunities for companies. Let's shift gears and let's move on to, um, to fringe benefits, some real specific changes in, in laws in the act itself that are impacting fringe benefits, Cindy. Yep, so if we start with the, on the employer side, there's really three main things that are kicking on the employer side. The first one being on entertainment expenses. So prior to the act, if there were entertainment expenses, they were related to the trade or the business, those still got a 50% deduction. Now with the act, those will go basically to zero and you, there will be no employer deduction for those. The other big one is around qualified transportation and the fringe benefits related to that. So if you think about the employee parking spots that you might give or you give, think about commuter benefits, et cetera, those are, are also no longer going to get an employer deduction. The good news is they are not going to be up to, of course, the certain limits included in the employee's taxable income, but the employer won't get the deduction. The one unfortunate one that kind of got trapped there is the bicycle commuting, any kind of reimbursement that might have been and is currently going to be given in bicycle commuting will become taxable to the employee. Hmm. And then the last one's really around the- What about showers after the bicycle? (laughs) Exactly, that's what you're getting reimbursed for. Unfortunately, you're gonna get, you know, you're gonna have to now pay tax on that shower. (laughs) So, um, and the other big one is really around the mills that's provided for the convenience of the employer. We kind of have a grace period here, right? So until the end of 2025, there will still be a 50% deduction on those for the convenience of the employer. Um, The, you know, starting in 2025, that will be phased out. Business mills, travel mills, those are still taxable as they normally were, um, but the other one. The, The big question that hangs out there that everyone's dying to find out the answer for is what about those mill expenses that are linked to entertainment? So maybe you have a, you know, a true business meal and then afterwards you go to a sporting event or you're on the golf course and afterwards you shower, clean up and go take it. Doesn't matter where the meal is. Are they going to be linked together mm. and both count as entertainment, which would have no tax deduction or will you be able to still get some deduction on the meal piece of it? And so, fair to say we're still waiting for that. We're still waiting for that. that. And okay. yeah, we get as lots we of questions on of it. That's yeah. exactly right. Something to keep, keep track of here. Yep. So that, that's exactly right. And then we switch over to the employee side. One of the items that the company will get the deduction for, but now is going to be includable in the employee taxable income is around moving expenses, um, which is actually going to have a pretty big impact. I know Julie before was talking about the expats, but you also just have people internally who move from one location to another location. And all of a sudden, you you companies often need these individuals to move. And so to count and say you're now going to get taxed on that as an individual, that's a big change that's coming through. Mm-hmm. So that's where the strategy comes in. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies are re-looking at their policy, trying to determine, you know, should we just gross everyone up? So that way, even though the employee gets taxed on it, they're still made whole. Mm-hmm. Should it instead just be one large lump sum allowance? 
so it's not you know necessarily isolating the different pieces. Um, so Julie, I don't know on the expat side. Yeah, so I mean, there are some changes with the expats, and I would say I was speaking to a client a couple weeks ago who does not gross up, and so they've sent people out, and they send them generally to non-tax countries, and now those people have to come back, and now their moving expenses are going to be taxable, and so they have to make a decision: should they gross that up or should they not? And I, I think they're going to not gross that up, so that's going to be a surprise to the employees when they're moving back. But one thing we really want people to keep in mind is that this is a U.S. tax law change. And you want to make sure that you're not going to cost yourself some foreign tax, let's say a 50% foreign tax for changing your moving policies to give cash where you could get something that's exempt under foreign tax by paying it differently. So you really need to be careful with global moves mm. to make sure that you're not changing something with a domestic focus, but then causing a foreign tax that could really cost you some money. But yeah. these gross-ups can be really expensive, right? So the for domestic moves really in particular, pricey. it can really add up. Yeah. yeah. And I would also say that um, as far as states go, um, you know, there's a bunch of states, about 20 right now, that haven't conformed to these rules. So there may be we, you know, more to come on that, and probably they will. But for now, some of the states, the moving may not be taxable where it is at the federal level. Yeah, and that really, I mean, it really makes a big question out there as to what are they going to do for the policies. Yeah. The same can even be said for the qualified transportation fringe benefits, right, where mm -hmm. the employer loses the deduction. Some cities, you have to provide that transit benefit. Mm. So there they just kind of lose it, right? So it's, it's interesting how it's going to be a real mix between thinking right. through the state ramifications and the given city ramifications. Yeah, that's right. Um, shifting gears again, um, we mentioned the rate changes, and they're pretty significant, and they've offered some short-term and some maybe medium, maybe not quite medium, but a little more than shorter-term opportunities for companies to accelerate tax deductions at that, uh, those old 35% rates. So, Cindy, maybe walk us through a couple of the, the big opportunities there. Okay, happy to. And I think what we'll do is we'll split it into kind of our calendar year tax year plans, uh, employers, so 1231 the 1231 companies, okay. companies and then the non-calendar tax year um, employers, if you will. And I will say that, and I think Craig can contest to this, the end of November and December was a lot of scrambling <laughs> for <laughs> trying to take as much advantage yeah. uh, for the year-end taxpayers as we possibly could. And so the non-calendar taxpayers will get the benefit of that. Yep. Lessons learned. <laughs> so with that, um, I'd probably, I'll start with on the, for the calendar tax years, the 1231s out there, the big one that you can still take advantage of is really around your pension plan. So if you think about a defined benefit plan, one of the rules that's out there for defined benefit plans is that you can make a contribution and kind of pull it back, if you will, to the tax year, as long as it's made up to eight and a half months after the plan year end. And so, for example, a 1231 taxpayer will have up until September 15th of 2018 to make a contribution and still get that deduction at the 35% um, from the 2017 Now, year. Cindy, I know a, we've all read a lot of people have phased out defined benefit plans. Mm -hmm. so that, does that mean this is really not available to many companies? Or No, and we'll talk about this in more detail in a bit, but it really can be. If you have a frozen plan, mm -hmm. there's still a lot of benefit to making a contribution up front, and it actually helps you start because thinking through this, uh, what you're going to do, what, right? what is your next step with that frozen plan. 
Should you consider terminating it? Should you, and it's really not just a tax play. Mm -hmm. um, so a frozen plan is a plan that, that is no longer accruing benefits, but it's still out there. It's, it's still, still paying benefits. So it could be 30, 40 years before that plan is exhausted. Is that? That's, it, that's exactly okay. right. That's okay. what I mean by gotcha. frozen plan or inactive, some people might call it. Okay. Um, compared to a plan where individuals are still earning additional benefits under the plan. Okay. Um, and I mean, the, you know, the advantages, there's a lot of advantages to pre-funding and making these contributions even outside of just getting the tax deduction. Okay. So for example, you know, there's something called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. That's kind of like the insurance company, if you will, behind qualified pension right. plans, right? For every dollar of underfunding, you have to pay a decent amount of premium to cover that underfunding. It's currently at $38. It's going to continue to increase for every $1,000. So that's yeah. pretty big numbers. Yeah. Um, so you know, reducing that PBGC premium is a big one. Even just getting benefit security. Being mm -hmm. a, if you have a union plan, for example, unions like to know that their plans are well-funded if it's a single employer, meaning one that the company sponsors. You know, the de-risking and some of the stuff that we can talk about, whether it's an ongoing plan or not, you know, even pre-funding for future accruals would mm -hmm. be another one that comes into play. Um, some people say the big question that we often get is what if we're in an NOL position or we don't have, you know, the deductibility this year. No taxable income. Right. Claim, yeah. And there's even a benefit there. Okay. Because really any NOLs that are kind of added to in 2017 will go forward at 100% okay. usage where once they start being added to an 18 and beyond, then it becomes only at 80%. So if you know that you're going to have quarterly contributions do the next couple of years, this is a real benefit to try to pull it in. Okay. The other great thing is it doesn't have to necessarily just be a cash contribution. Mm -hmm. There's other ways to fund these benefits. You saw in the you know, Wall Street Journal and other places, a lot of companies that did debt offerings and used portions of that proceeds to pay down a portion of their pension mm. deficit. You know, company stock is another one that's out there that you know, obviously there's fiduciary responsibilities, things to think through, sure. but there's a lot of different ways to kind of fund these benefits, if you will. Well, and the other thing I've heard is um, obviously with cash coming in, right? We talked about repatriation as an investment opportunity. This this certainly exists, and and I guess there's a way to think about this that it's almost funding your toll charge, right? Yep. Because if you get the the, right. the arbitrage on the yep. on the deduction, um, and you're paying the toll charge, so yep. a lot of different things to a think of, about there. Exactly, a lot of things to think about. It's a great way for tax, finance, HR, kind of all to come together, mm -hmm. even thinking through you know, foreign tax credits, you know, can some of it be carried back into a prior year? So there's a lot of different math that goes into the analysis. Okay, great. Um, the one thing I will point out is for the non-calendar plans, if you think about a June 30, mm -hmm. even though I know that's here in a few slides, but if you think about a June 30 plan, they have until March 15th to still get a contribution in okay. at the 35% tax rate. And similarly, the September 30th year end will also still be able to pull it in. Um, even at the highest tax rate there. So that's a great opportunity okay. for those, some quick ones. Um, you asked, Scott, earlier about kind of a frozen or inactive versus the active plan. Yeah. And this, is really, this slide really goes to that. And it's all about thinking through what is the right amount to contribute, right? Okay. So if I think about what I will call an active plan or a plan that people are still accruing benefits, does it make sense to pre-fund the next five or 10 years of contributions that are otherwise going to be in there for those accruals? No, in addition to funding up any deficit. For a frozen plan, we're actually seeing a couple things being discussed. One is they're using it to think through the strategy, you know, should we start funding towards a termination basis? Mm -hmm. What is our long-term strategy? Do we want to de-risk the asset side? But the other one, companies are thinking about should they kind of quote unquote defrost their pension plan, meaning they probably move to a defined contribution plan where they're given a fixed 
amount to that plan. Doesn't make like sense. Like a 401k. Like a 401k, or a match that's or, exactly okay. right. Doesn't make sense instead to put a large contribution into your defined benefit plan, almost make like what we call like a cash balance plan, looks and feels very much like that defined contribution, mm -hmm. and start making some of those contributions into that plan to run it down. Okay. One of the things that often comes up when you talk about these big contributions is we don't want to overfund. How much is too much, right? Um, and a lot of that is because you know the, the rules out there for excise tax, if there's excess assets upon plan termination, they can be quite harsh. The one thing to keep in mind is if you do share those contributions with, you know, say you use the excess to pay the defined contribution plan, for example, mm -hmm. that will mitigate and even eliminate the excise tax there. Okay. So, you know, for those that have that concern, that's one thing just to keep in mind on that front. But really, it's really just, you know, thinking through what's the internal rate of return? Is this the best use of the cash that you have available or other funding mechanisms that you might have available between debt or treasury? Okay. See, one of the things that really resonates with me on the frozen plans is I have a lot of clients that have those on a glide path determination. That's right. And they're debating when they're going to put money into those. They seems to me they've got a window right now to think about putting money in today where it may cost them less than it might cost them two years from now. So yeah. that window's going to close. The window's going to close. You get a 14% basically reduction right away exactly. just by putting in at the higher tax rate. Exactly. That's so people exactly should be right. you know, sort of assessing this stuff, even if they're on a glide path. Now's a chance to relook at things. Yep. Decide what they That's exactly. And it's not just this year's contribution, but right. the ability right. to, to really get, exactly. get this out of the way right away. Yeah, a lot okay. of people are doing that projection to say, mm -hmm. what are my contributions going to look like over the next five or so years? Can I pull it back? What's that dollar amount? Okay. How can I get the funding? Great. And it's really not, I mean, obviously we just talked about the U.S. pension plans that are offered. The other thing I will throw out there, Scott, earlier you mentioned the toll charge. You know, the foreign plans, if you do have some of those CFCs out there, um, one good source of reducing the amount of ENP is through your foreign pension plans. And so it's really revisiting and looking to see, you know, what plans are out there? Is there some type of reduction? Do we have a valid method under 404 Cap A, which is the tax code that applies to these plans? But really kind of taking a clean look at that, um, you know, we want to mitigate the compliance risk to make sure that you have all the right paperwork in place, but you also want to make sure that you're taking advantage, if you will, of any accounting method change, if you might be on one method and you could benefit from moving to a different method, for example, like if it's a funded plan. Right. You mentioned foreign plans, and I know companies have, you know, a variety of different, particularly those that have gone through acquisitions right. and, yep. and, and lots of um, mergers over the years. What are some of the other issues around foreign plans that, as they go out and answer some of the questions you just asked, what are some of the other things they should be looking at? Well, it's interesting because if you think about foreign plans, many of them are also frozen or, you know, people okay. aren't accruing them. So what happens, those plans start to get smaller and smaller. And from an accounting standpoint, that's usually when people think about the foreign plans. They want to make sure that they're including the, the balance sheet, if you will. And sometimes if they're not material, they may be forgetting about them. So one thing I would, you know, strongly suggest is look at an inventory. Think through, do you know where you even have defined benefit plans? You know, to the extent you can potentially get some type of deduction for your branches or an ENP adjustment for your CFCs, looking at those and determining, you know, what's the right answer? Should I make is, you know, an accounting method change available for your non-calendar year-end plan? Um, just really understanding what plans are out there and what opportunities exist from pre-funding them or even terminating some of them. So I kind of feel like there's a theme here. Julie, you talked mm -hmm. about specific 
sort of tax-driven issues around mobility, then thinking about policies and using that as a catalyst to rethink. I'm kind of hearing the same thing here, right? We've yep. got an action here that can be taken. There's some potential benefits that result from tax reform. And it's also then a good reason to take a look at, okay, what are we actually doing around all these pensions as well as um, looking at the foreign stuff? So, so great, great stuff. Okay, great. Um, you talked about calendar, non-calendar, so let's talk non-calendar. Craig, you taking that one? Yeah, I am, Scott. So Cindy alluded to this, that our calendar year clients had a lot of fun at year-end dealing with trying to find ways to accelerate deductions into 2017. So they've blazed a trail here for non-calendar year, fiscal year filers to think about following. And the real opportunity here is for a fiscal year filer, if they can get a deduction into the fiscal year ended in 18, they get the benefit of a blended rate in 2018 that they wouldn't otherwise get beyond that. So the one classic example to do this would be to accelerate the deductions for bonuses. Most companies have an annual bonus program, and typically that bonus is earned in one year but paid in the subsequent year, and most companies deduct it in the subsequent year because that bonus hasn't satisfied the all events test as of the end of the year earned. And that's typically because the plan requires things like the employee to still be there at the time of payment in order to get paid. So what some employers are thinking about is could we take action before fiscal year end in order to secure that bonus and and satisfy the all events test by committing to paying it regardless of whether the employers are going to be gone at year end. So they establish a bonus pool and they basically take a corporate action to say that we will pay X dollars to employees no matter what. And by committing to that, they are satisfying the all events test and taking that bonus deduction in the year earned as opposed to the year paid. Okay. So that's the big one on the comp side. There are a bunch of these on the benefit side too, Cindy, to think about, right? Yeah, and I'd probably say the one of the biggest ones out there on the benefit side is on retiree medical. So unlike pensions, for pensions where you still have that eight and a half months after the plan yep. you're in to make the contribution habit count, for your retiree medical, if you do establish a VIVA, or if you already have one you want to fund into it, you do have to have that contribution in by the last day of the taxable year. So that's one of the big differences on those. Um, but depending on if you, know, if you have a union population versus non-union, the limits are quite different. Mm. But for union populations, and many of the union populations are the ones that still have these retiree medical programs, you really can fund up quite a bit. And so that's a large source of funding and contribution that you can pull in. Agreed. Yeah. The other one, I think probably every employer out there almost still offers some form of active medical. And this is a really an accounting method play. And many companies are on kind of a paid basis instead of an accrual basis, if you will, for their active medical. And so, you know, they are basically taking the deduction as the claims are being paid. Um, and so one of the accounting method changes that's out there and that's available is to switch that from, clay, from a paid to an incurred basis. And that will pull more in since you're going to obviously have that kind of a like couple months of claims that have been incurred by year end but not paid yet. Great. We really appreciate you joining and, and listening to us um, share some information about the human capital issues. We'll look forward to seeing you all again next week on our Tax Reform Readiness Series. Thanks very much.